Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and it's August 3rd. As per usual, Todd Campbell is calling into Full HQ here in Alexandria, Virginia. And in keeping with this week's Industry Focus theme of pop culture, Todd, I want to ask, what is your all-time favorite TV show? You know, if we're going to be talking about healthcare, which I think we are, uh, I've, I've got so many, you know, there are a few that I really loved. Like, I loved MASH. MASH was awesome. Um, I, I love Scrubs. I love House. You guys might recognize the the giggling in the background. We actually have another guest on the show today. This is our industry-focused financials host, Gabby LaPera. Hey Welcome guys. to the show. Gabby, what's your favorite TV show? Uh, favorite TV show of, of all time. All time. I'm going to have to go with Star Trek, all of them, which is a little bit cheating. Um, but then my favorite medical drama is definitely Scrubs, drama slash comedy. So, as you guys picked up on, we are going to be talking about healthcare because it's Wednesday and that's what Industry Focus does on Wednesdays. And so, we thought it would be kind of interesting to talk about healthcare TV shows, specifically um, medical and hospital shows. And these shows, they are a staple of primetime television. It's like you've got You've got medical dramas, you've got cop dramas. These are just really classic TV shows. And Gabby already called me out on the Monday episode for not actually (laughs) knowing that much about TV, but it's true. I really don't. So I'm very glad to have not one, but two guests on the show that do know a little bit about these shows. So I actually, I've heard of them. I know there's Scrubs, you guys mentioned that one, House, Grey's Anatomy. What else? Uh, What was the one with George Clooney? Was that like. Oh, that was ER. ER. That was yeah, yeah, that was around for a long time. I think they did 15 seasons of that. It was on for forever. So that means 15 years? Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. 15 years. And then there's also General Hospital, which is more of a soap opera um, <laughs> of the style of like evil twin appears, takes over normal twin's life, and then like goes into a coma and wakes up seven years later, like dramatic type. And that's the thing. These shows are very dramatic. And so the question that gets raised is, how does that influence people's perception of reality? There are these studies that look into frequent viewers of these types of shows, and they found that the vast majority of them report that they actually learned something about a new health condition, or they took an action after seeing something about a health issue on TV. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or if I should be concerned about that. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like it, it's. It's a little column A, a little column B, right? Uh, so yeah, it's great that people are more concerned about their health, and they're like, maybe I should get out and walk and lower my cholesterol a little bit, or like, oh my God, that guy's symptoms for that super rare disease are exactly like my regular life. Like maybe I should go to a doctor, and you know, like maybe that helps save their life. On the flip side of that, you have a lot more people, I think, freaking out about rare diseases that are rare, that are actually rare, that they they probably just don't have them. <laughs> Because of right, course, I mean, the- Gabby, if you were watching House as often as I was back when it was on, you would have thought that these rare diseases were as common as, as uh, cancer and, and heart disease and diabetes. Because the things that actually contribute to people's deaths more frequently, that doesn't make good TV. No. And I mean, you also get a lot of really super life-threatening conditions that end up not actually being all that life-threatening if you were to can keep count of how many people end up surviving these conditions due to some miraculous intervention on the doctor's behalf. Right, you wouldn't expect to, you know, get a lot of viewers if you were having people with diabetes sitting down across from you or and you're saying, "Well, you should probably eat better and you should go for more walks." Yeah, but on the flip side of that, I do want to point out that people think that stuff like uh, CPR 
or like getting electric shocks after getting a heart attack, people think that's way more effective than it actually is. Yeah, that's a huge problem. There are these false depictions of CPR, and that's not the only thing. There's also seizure care. There is a study about seizure care in Grey's Anatomy, House, private practice, and ER, and it found that in 46% of seizure cases, the treatment that was happening on the show was completely inappropriate. Either they were trying to hold the person down or stop their involuntary movements or put something in their mouth, which all of these things are a bad idea. For the record, proper seizure care is just make sure they don't hurt themselves, clear the area of dangerous objects, maybe put something soft into their head, rotate them on their side. But 46% of the time, they were doing not that. They were doing things that are actually detrimental. And if you're watching these shows, there's no disclaimer that comes on at the end of it. Like, hey, well, actually, I don't know this for for sure. I'm pretty sure there's no disclaimer at the end that says, hey, kids, don't try this at home. Maybe. No, yes. there's there's not. You're awesome. right. <laughs> Another uh, really interesting thing to look at here is cardiac arrest, which on TV, there's, there's another study of uh, ER and a couple of other different shows that found that 75% of patients survived cardiac arrest immediately, which just is not the case. In, in reality, long-term survival is between 2 and 30% for cardiac arrest outside of a hospital. And so the question that this raises for me is, Are these shows helpful in bringing awareness to the realities of how hospitals and ER rooms work? Yeah, and I would argue that they're kind of not. I mean, you typically end up with a situation where you've got this flawed, brilliant, great, talented doctor, and he's pitted up against, you know, the mean, you know, rules-following, penny-pincher administrator. Um, you know, the reality is that, you know, if you had someone like House uh, providing care and he was in the show, you know, opiate dependent, you probably would, you probably wouldn't want that person caring for you uh, in real life. Um, and it certainly does, you know, I, I guess, diminish kind of the nuts and bolts of business behind hospitals. I mean, it talks about, okay, doctor, great doctor, you know, versus penny pinching. But, you know, if you're not doing the penny pinching too, then hospitals can't afford to make the investments that they need to uh, to provide better care later on. Not only that, but it speaks to kind of like this thing that I think exists in most cultures where people kind of view doctors as like this like God-like figure who can just diagnose what's wrong with them and immediately know what, what it is and they know everything. So that's not 100% the case. Like diagnoses often take a long time. It's sometimes just guesswork. And the other thing is that sometimes patients really have to advocate for themselves um, as opposed to doctors just like seeing them and knowing what's wrong right away and being like, yeah, I, I can fix this. No problem. You know, like sometimes patients really have to ask questions for themselves and, you know, double check that whatever medicine they're being given is actually the medicine they were prescribed. And it's it kind of sucks, but that's the way it is in real life. Yeah. yeah, and the real life hospitals aren't very sexy either, right? You know, I mean, they're not this hotbed of, of maybe they are <laughs> romanticism, but you know, I, I mean, the business of of being uh, a hospital operator is, you know, I mean, it's a single digit growing industry. It's a boring kind of industry. You know, you've got care, you give care, you, you know, you charge payers for that care. It's it's not nearly as exciting maybe as some of these shows make it out to be. But as investors, this is a way that you can invest directly in these hospitals. Todd, really quick, can you give us a rundown of some of the major players in the space? Yeah, the, well, the two that, that maybe investors would be most interested in would be HCA and Tenet Healthcare, so symbols HCA and THC. 
And, you know, I already said this, I alluded to it earlier, you know, these are slow growing businesses, but they do have the wonderful benefit of having an aging population providing a lot of tailwinds for demand, right? So, you know, most of these companies, HGA and THC, they're growing their businesses one to three percent um per year you know their their margins aren't great but they're not horrible they're certainly not as profitable as a drug maker um you know they spend about 80 percent of the money they haul in in revenue on operating costs so you know they're, they're profitable they make money but you know building hospitals is expensive so you know they're maybe not the uh, the most exciting stocks to own within the healthcare space so next time you're binge watching hospital shows, you're welcome for making you think about investing while you're trying to relax. I'm I'm gonna throw out a couple companies from the finance, technically in the financial sphere, which are um, healthcare REITs, which a REIT is a real estate investment trust. Um, so HCP, HCN, so Well Tower, Healthcare REITs, and Ventas, which I think is V E N or it might be V T S. Don't hold me to that. I'm sure you can Google that if you really want to. So, um, how do they make money? They um, so what they do is they lease out space to operators, um, and a lot of them make pretty good money because one, there's a, there's a lot of demand for healthcare, but um, because of the aging population, like Todd mentioned earlier. Um, but since they're just leasing out the space, they don't really have to worry about making MRIs profitable or anything. They just get to benefit from. Having these people pay them because healthcare is not like Amazon, right? Like you can't just get your healthcare over the internet for the most part. Like you actually have to go to a hospital or a doctor's office to get treatment. So they're, as far as healthcare businesses go, fairly stable. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, they pay out a nice dividend too. So oh, that's true. <laughs> income investors can pay attention to that as well. That's a good point, Todd, too. So we have another topic that we want to cover on today's show, and this is one that I personally can speak to way more than TV. And so this is the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, which you guys might remember two years ago, there was this huge trend where people were dumping buckets of ice over their head. And if you didn't pay it too much attention, that probably is all you took from it. But what was going on behind the scenes here is there is this huge wave of challenges going on where you were given the option, if you were challenged, to either dump this bucket of ice over your head or donate money to ALS. And most people didn't really know what ALS was, but it went viral. Celebrities were doing it. You had professional athletes doing it. I did it. Did, did either of you do it? Oh, I, I did it. I did not. But Christine. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. We did it right by the beach. So. <laughs> but Christine, what is ALS? Exactly. So <laughs> this is the most important question that you can ask when you talk about the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, because it raised a lot of awareness for a disease that not a lot of people know about. So ALS stands for, and I apologize if I butcher how you pronounce this, but amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So I, I love language, so I'm actually going to get really nerdy about the language here. Break down. Yeah. So it comes from Greek, uh, the first word anyway, the amyotrophic. So a means no, myo is muscle, and the trophic means nourishment. So you get there a lack of muscle nourishment. Um, lateral refers to the spine, so uh, particularly where the brain tells muscles what to do. And then sclerosis means a hardening, so a scarring of a scarring of the region as it degenerates. Scarring is a good word. Scarring, that's close enough. Portmanteau. I, I did say I'm I'm sorry for butchering <laughs> my language here as I'm trying to explain language. But so you take it all together, and ALL, ALS is a progressive neurodegenerative disease. So it attacks these nerve cells in the brain and the spinal cord, and as these motor neurons die, the ability of the brain to initiate and control your muscle movement is lost. 
and eventually, three to five years after your diagnosis, the patient dies. And this is not an extremely prevalent disease. Uh, many people may know it as Lou Gehrig's disease. There are approximately 6,000 new cases in the U.S. annually, and there's only one FDA-approved drug that exists for it. And even then, it just moderately slows the progression of ALS in some people for about three months, which is not extremely. Uh, <laughs> that's not great. So. There is a need here, an unmet need. And you find this with a lot of rare diseases where it can be kind of hard to get funding to research them. And so ALS and the Ice Bucket Challenge remade the news again recently that the challenge and the money that it had raised ended up discovering a new gene related to the disease, which is kind of cool, but it also raises a lot of questions about. Okay, like what was this money put to use in the best way, and what does this new discovery of the gene mean? What do you guys think? I, you know, I, ALS is a drug is a disease a lot like Alzheimer's, um, very very hard to understand, and unfortunately, most of the treatments that have made their way into the human clinical trials have haven't borne fruit, if you will. There are a couple of companies out there that are doing research that investors will want to know about. We'll talk about those in a second. You know, there's this whole big question of, you know, where should I give my dollars, you know, charity-wise that people have to wrestle with all the time. And certainly, you know, doing things like, you know, the muscular dystrophy uh, telethons uh, of when I was growing up and, and doing things like the ALS um, challenge, those kind of things raise awareness. I think that's important. Um, whether or not that's going to actually translate into an effective cure or treatment, we're too early stages to say at this point. Yeah, I think that one of the major things that people objected to with the ALS challenge um, is that if you look at a pie chart of diseases that kill Americans, ALS is not even in the top five, maybe not even in the top ten. Like uh, heart disease is is the biggest killer by far of Americans, and so people were like, "Why don't you just send that money towards heart disease?" Right, that's the whole argument of uh, funding cannibalism, right? Yeah, Todd, can you explain that phrase a little bit? Well, essentially, there's this there's this movement out there in the charity world towards effective altru- uh, altruism, or you know, EA, and the idea is that you can quantitatively look at where your donation can have the biggest bang for its buck, if you will, um, and therefore, theoretically, quantitatively speaking, that's where you should be making your donation. So, which speak kind of like to what Gabby was saying, which is that you know, ALS is an important disease, and certainly there's a need for for cures, but you've got millions of people dying of malaria still. And maybe that's where the focus of the of these dollars should be heading instead. You know, it's a, it's a very touchy and sensitive subject, though. It is. It's really hard to to criticize altruism at all. And another layer to add to this story is that maybe some of these people weren't planning on donating any money at all to disease prevention, and now all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, I don't want to dump a bucket of ice on my head. I'm going to give a hundred dollars where I might not otherwise have." Yeah, and I think the other thing to think about is that. Um drug companies, I think this is a point that we talked about a couple days ago, drug companies have an incentive to do research for for diseases that kill a lot of people, because they'll make way more money because a lot of people get them. Yeah, they're for-profit companies. Exactly, but um, nonprofit research organizations don't get a lot of money to do studies on people who, frankly, die fairly quickly of diseases that are fairly rare. So, it's, it's one of those things where maybe raising awareness for something like this is is really good. It is an actual altruistic thing. I don't know. I can see both sides. 
And one thing that I, I think is worth mentioning that we haven't quite touched on yet is this new gene discovery that the media has been touting lately. This is only the very, very first step into actually doing something yeah. with it. it. There is a huge gulf between discovering a gene and getting a drug actually out on the market. And this gene is only present in about 3% of ALS cases anyway, although it's still among the most common genes that contribute to the disease. So, this is something that there's still a lot of work to be done, and it'll probably take a lot more money than has already been raised. Right. The, the advances in treatment will probably come. Uh, still in the form of addressing the symptoms rather than um, the root cause. And, you know, you've got a couple companies out there that are doing some good work in that regard. Uh, you've got a company called Cytokinetics. Uh, the symbol there is CYTK. They're working on a phase three trial for a drug they call Tiracemtiv. Um, that's something worth keeping an eye on. I think results are expected next year. Uh, Biogen and Ionis are also teamed up with some early stage work on ALS as well. And to add another investing takeaway here, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the hype over the Zika virus, which we've all seen the news about Zika, and there's, there's a lot of fear out there. And some of the stocks associated with developing cures for this disease or vaccines have been really inflated recently. And we did an entire show about this a while ago. But I would just warn investors to be cautious about following the big news stories and trying to find specific investing takeaways there. For example, if you're going to invest in Biogen, it probably shouldn't be for their ALS research. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that you're kind of getting at is that science reporting is very different for different audiences. So, like, if you're just looking at like an article that appears on your Facebook, that's like U.S. News and World Report, which is not a bad news source, but they tend to say like, "Oh, they found a gene! Like, that's great! Like, this is a, this is a huge advancement," and it is. But that needs to be tempered, like Christine said. So, if you're going to try and use news sources to to inform your investing decision, you're going to want to try and find more technical, academic sources that are like, we found a gene, and now the this is probably the progression for the next like 10 years of research. Yeah, research is a marathon, for sure. And so, while this is a really good step in the right direction, it's still something that, as you mentioned, does need to be tempered. Um, meanwhile, I, I'll also add that giving to charity is its own form of investing, and so there, I would say that we can talk about that as an investing takeaway for this show. And My takeaway, personally, as far as charity goes, would be a site called GiveWell. These guys do MBA-level analysis of charities so that you know exactly how effective these charities are and how much bang for the buck, so to speak, you'll get from donating to them. And I'll say it doesn't rate every charity, but it focuses on a couple that stand out the most to them to produce a list of what they consider to be the best of the best. And if you need a selfish right reason to give charitably, um, tax deductions. <laughs> Spoken like our <laughs> financials host right there. So, uh, Todd and Gabby, thank you guys so much for coming on the show today to talk pop culture and healthcare and the intersection thereof. Listeners, stay tuned for the rest of Pop Culture Week here on Industry Focus. Avid Fool podcast listeners will be particularly interested in Friday's tech show, where there's going to be a very familiar voice from another Fool podcast. And if you're scratching your head saying, wait, there are more Fool podcasts, head on over to podcast.fool.com and check out the whole suite of them. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell and Gabby LaPera, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!